It's kind of crazy to think that as recently as 40 years ago, if you wanted to make beer in your home, you'd have to break the law. Thankfully, in 1978, it became legal on the federal level for people to homebrew, but unfortunately, this didn't include everyone as certain states continued to restrict this natural right. But this all ended in 2013 when the last two holdouts Mississippi and Alabama passed laws making it okay for people to make beer at home. For the first time since Prohibition, it was legal to homebrew in all 50 of the United States. This was due in large part to the dedication and hard work of the American Homebrewers Association. In addition to continuing the fight for our right to brew, they're committed to growing the hobby by coordinating events such as Big Brew for National Homebrew Day and HomebrewCon. We're proud to say that the Brewlosophy Podcast is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association and encourage all of our listeners to support the organization that has done so much for this hobby by becoming a member today. Whether brewing with extract or all grain, there are a few rules every new brewer is told they must abide by in order to produce a beer that's not chock full of nasty flavors. From recipe kit instructions to advice spun as mandate on internet forums, one such rule promises that if broken, your beer will taste disgustingly of cooked corn. Ugh. You're listening to the Brewlosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Marshall Schott. And in this episode, I'm joined by Brewlosophy contributor Jason Cipriani to talk about the length at which we boil wort. I think you hit it right on the head there, Marshall. This is one of those topics that it does have a mandate to it. When you're first learning how to brew, whether you're reading online forums or text or talking to a buddy who maybe has been doing extract or all grain, you're told 60-minute boil all the time or minimum at the very least. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, but that's, that's the go-to, right. Is 60 minutes. You need to hit that 60 minute boil. Um, and you're just going to do it for 60 minutes. And that's a fact. (laughs) Yeah. I remember thinking the same thing. Um, and, and I also remember, you know, I, I've, I don't mean to like hit people hard over the head with, with, uh, dorky philosophical stuff, but like these existential thoughts that I've had about time in general, you know, Martin Heidegger, uh, has written a lot about what time is and, and, the flex. And I I remember always wondering, like, you know, who in the right mind thought that like this, this 60 minutes first off was an hour and that that just happened to be like the ideal amount of time that you boil work. Like it got rid of all the bad stuff, you know? Yeah. Maybe it was some sort of timekeeping issue, right? It was easier to, to check on, uh, on the hour instead of having to split the hour into quarters or, or halves or whatever to monitor a boiling wort. I don't know, hundreds of years ago. I, I have no idea why that magic number came about. Um, yeah, it's, it's a weird number. <laughs> 60 minutes, honestly. Uh, and, and you know what? The other interesting thing I've thought of it when it comes to time, and this has nothing to do with boiling wort, but the fact that that there is no metric for time, you know what I mean? Like we have our imperial system over here in the U.S. when it comes to measurements, but but when it comes to time, we all rely on this 60-minute hour. And I know it has to do with revolutions around the sun and whatnot. But anyways, of the many variables in the brewing process, this is one I always took super seriously, just like you, Jason, making sure to boil every batch for an absolute minimum of one hour, sometimes going as long as 90 minutes, uh, you know, for... for uh, worts that consisted uh, of mostly Pilsner, of wort that came from Pilsner grain. Um, we're going to be talking about what happens during the boil, why it's important, and some very interesting experiment results in just a bit. Hey, listen, I want to thank everybody who has remembered to use the links over at brewlosophy.com slash support. I mean this from the bottom of my heart. It helps us out immensely. Every penny from that helps us to continue bringing you this show and all the stuff we do over at the website. Uh, if you are looking for a way to support us really easily, head over to brewlosophy.com slash support. There's a whole list of links you can use when you do your shopping online. Uh, if you want to be rewarded a little bit more for your support, you can become a patron of Brewlosophy by pledging a small monthly contribution contribution. In return for that, you're going to receive things like access to the brew, uh, the brew crew private forum, never before published recipes, unique discounts at yakimavalleyhops.com, and an invitation to a monthly live Q&A with a special guest. Uh, coming up later this month, we've got blogger and New England IPA expert Scott Janish, who's going to be phoning in from Norway. How cool is that? Last month we had Gordon Strong who was in Brazil. Uh, so the coming later up, you know, coming up later this month, we've got Scott Janish who's, who's calling us in from Norway. So pretty cool stuff. Um, in addition to working on a book that um, is going to be all about this hazy IPA thing, he's also opening Sapwood Cellars with Michael Tonsmeyer who did the live 
Q&A a couple months ago. Uh, to learn more about how you can be rewarded for helping us to bring you all of the content we do, head over to patreon.com slash brewlosophy. No joke, you are all what make this whole thing possible. So thank you. So Jason, we've got about a month and a half before you get to attend your very first homebrew con. How excited are you for this, man? Dude, I am beyond excited. I, I have zero idea of what to expect. I mean, obviously, we've talked in the group uh, of between the members of who have been last year or years prior on kind of what to expect, but I it, it just doesn't do it justice. I am beyond excited. Well, let, let me help you. Here's what you can expect. A lot of drinking, some really odd smell, smells while walking around the expo, <laughs> um, sweaty dudes who like to hug. I mean, um, and you can, you can definitely expect to get your, your, your sing on during our annual karaoke party on Thursday night. That's June 28th. We still have some room on the guest list. It is filling up fast at this point. Um, but if you want to make sure that you're able to attend this event, feel free to email me, Marshall at brewlosophy.com, and I'll get you details on how you can make an early donation uh, so you don't have to, you know, worry about showing up and, and not being able to have a spot in the uh, what's going to be a really awesome event. So again, that's Marshall at brewlosophy.com. Uh, and, uh, we'd love to have you there. Uh, and then at the end of September, we got another cool event coming on, uh, Brian Hall, our contributor, Brian and I are going to be heading up to Yakima, Washington again to attend the fresh hop ale festival. Think about that. The place that grows the most hops in the world at the end of hop harvest, brewing up a whole bunch of beers with fresh hops. And we get to drink them and hang out with other cool people. It's going to be a blast. If you want to attend, if you're going to be around Yakima or whatever at the time, please let us know. We'd love to meet up with you. Uh, we're also going to be hanging out with our friends from Yakima Valley Hops. So uh, it's going to be a good time. I'm pretty jealous of that. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of jealous of my future self on that one as well. I, I, wish, <laughs> I wish it would come a little bit faster. But I'm also super excited for HomebrewCon. Just all kinds of cool beer stuff coming up in the next couple of months. That's awesome. Yeah. So if you're a homebrewer with an experimental bent... You have an opportunity to have your results published over at brewlosophy.com. That's right. We are collaborating with the Brew Club on a series where members brew up their own experiments using methods as close to those that we use over at the website. And then we are going to select some of those uh, experiments to be published on the website, just like we publish our own experiment results, uh, giving full credit to the brewer and doing a little you know, expose of, of the person who did the experiment. To learn more and to become a member of the Brew Club, you can head over to thebrewclub.com. That's the B-R-U-club.com. It's totally free, run by a cool group of brewers who are not us. And they really, <laughs> they don't really mind being your side club if that's your gig. If you have another club, you don't have to worry about uh, having this as your second. They're cool with that. All right. Uh, feedback this week is brought to you by Imperial Yeast, who are providing brewers with the finest quality yeast on the market, packing 200 billion cells into each pitch right pouch. Brewers are insured a quick and healthy fermentation. All of us here at Brewlosophy have been using Imperial Yeast for a while now, and we absolutely love it. Jason, do you love it or what? I love it. It's such good stuff with a wide range of ale and lager strains as well. Some funkier stuff. Imperial Yeast is sure to have what you need to turn your wort into delicious beer. Go check out everything Imperial Yeast has to offer at imperialyeast.com today. I'll actually be using one of their Belgian strains, Gnome, in my next batch. Looking forward to seeing how that turns out. Okay, so as I'm sure many of you are aware, Milk the Funk has become a leading voice in the sour beer movement. And in fact, they recently started a podcast that I recommend everyone go check out. It's called Milk the Funk, the podcast. Pretty easy to find. So in regards to the episode on quick souring that we released just, what was it, two weeks ago, uh, where my buddy Sean Wood joined us live here in the studio, one of the dudes behind Milk the Funk, Dan Pixley, reached out with a point of clarification on something I mentioned in the episode about Another thing that I read on the wiki. Here's what Dan says. Just a clarification on the isovaleric acid issue and the MTF wiki. It was Chris Johnson from Greenbench that said that he believed that purging with CO2 will prevent aerobic contaminants from creating IVA. That's isovaleric acid. Technically speaking, he is right. Both aerobic and anaerobic microbes can produce IVA perhaps more so aerobic. Um, additionally, the CO2 purging method is the standard process in the industry, which is why we leave it on the wiki, along with Chris's explanation for what CO2 purging accomplishes, given that it is the only explanation that makes sense other than maybe helping prevent a vacuum from forming as the kettle cools, which could potentially suck in microbes if you are unlucky. So Dan goes on to explain that the actual myth here is the butyric acid myth, uh, which is that lacto creates butyric acid when exposed to O2. That's just biologically incorrect, he says. I don't have any good sources on where this myth originates from, but I think it originates from slow kettle souring processes 
as well as using grain or sour mashing. Uh, as methods for wort souring slowly moved to pure cultures, the CO2 process and belief that it helps prevent butyric acid kind of came along with it. Jason, what do you think about this? You just recently did an experiment on uh, sa- kettle souring. So I think it's both, actually. Uh, the myth of the butyric acid as well as the uh, IVA that kind of led to the genesis of coming up with that, that experiment we did a couple weeks ago where I tested a purged keg with uh, fresh wort in it being kettle soured as well as another keg that was wide open with a piece of foil on top of it to keep debris out. And, you know, I had always heard that if, if I was to do that, just leave oxygen freely flowing in there, I would have all kinds of bad off smells and flavors. And, and, you know, there'd be a lot of funky stuff going on. You with and it. me both. Yeah. I've heard the same thing. And while uh, and you could go on, you know, brewlosophy.com and look up the experiment, it, at the end of the day, I had two identical beers. There may have been a weird smell during the boil of the O2 batch, but, um, you know, there was no difference once they were carved and fermented out and, you know, ready to serve and were actually coming out of the tap. Yeah, 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 totally. Super interesting results on that one. Um, I, 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 like I said in that episode, the reason I wanted Sean and Malcolm on that, on that episode is because I am in no way a sour beer expert. Um, and, and of all people, I, you know, Dan Pixley, he knows way more about this stuff than, than Absolutely. I do. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. um, I, you know, I, I don't, I, I really, I, you know, maybe I didn't try hard enough, but I felt like I tried to make it such that, or to say what I said on that, um, to not like throw Chris under the bus or anything. Um, but, but really just to point out that that's, that's one of the places that I've seen referenced a few times as to why, you know, you should put a blanket of CO2 over your work before you go on to kettle sour, uh, stuff like that. But I, but I don't, yeah, I don't think that they're, they're necessarily the source of the, of the myth or the rumor as a, as a Oh no, 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 no. I've, I've seen it all over the place and I've honestly have yet to see it linked or referenced back to that post. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate Dan sharing this information. He's just a, a, a you know a vat of information, if you will. And uh, so, so yeah, if you have any f- show feedback, if we say something that you disagree with or or that is just blatantly wrong, you can uh, let us know by emailing Jason at feedback at brewlosophy.com. That's right. Jason is the one who receives those emails. So again, that's feedback at brewlosophy.com. Well, one style of beer that's definitely not sour is light lager, which to this day is the most consumed beer in the world. I recently received a German-liked beer from award-winning homebrewer Jake Freshour, who's one of the three guys who's going to be brewing beers for us uh, for HomebrewCon this year. I was super excited to try this light German lager. One minute beer review with Jersey and Tim. Must have used that gelatin They used that gelatin, dude. Look, I can see your face. No, I can't. We like the clear ones. You know they're not going to be as hard on you. Not much smell either. <laughs> we we got ourselves convinced that we can derive anything of importance with our sniffers. That's another smooth beer. Mm, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Yeah, it's not bad. <clears throat> I would drink this all yeah, night long. It's like a, it's well because it tastes like a Coors Light. Yeah, it's crushable. I like the beers that taste like a Coors Light, uh-huh. which we've now as learned men know is possibly a Pilsner. I don't know. We're not going to commit. It might be a Coors Light. Well, isn't that a who knows? I don't know. That's what I think this is right here. Clean. I like it. I like it. Because it doesn't taste like anything. Yeah. Except for beer. Tastes like beer. Things taste like beer. And then sometimes like they try to add all these other flavors. Yeah. Subhuman non-crafty reviewer types like us like tend to like beers that taste just like beer. Just like beer, yeah. It's good. Drink this all, the, all weekend <laughs> yeah. long by the pool. No, I drink this too. Yeah, it's, it's quite good. What do you yeah. like about it, Jers? That it's basic. Like you. <laughs> You know, it's just a light drinking drinking beer. We, of course, love all kinds of other genres and flavors. You could shotgun this. Yep. You could do a keg stand with this. Yep. You could drink this while playing cornhole or bags until like two in the morning. Yep. This is a Cure's Lot. Yeah, it's definitely good. I agree. It's very good. This is a shotgunning, pounding beer or like drinking a can while playing cornhole. This is basically like a German version of a Miller or Kurz Lat. So you guys nailed it. We don't know a lot, but we know our wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they pretty much nailed this one. Uh, Jake's beer was clean, crisp, light, everything you'd expect from a crushable beer that you could pound, keg stand, and drink while throwing bags. Jake shared that the majority of the grains used in this batch were from Mecca Great Estate Malt, which I've been using a lot lately. Super good stuff. And uh, yeah, it was the, the beer was fantastic. Jason, have you ever had a German-liked beer? 
I, I can't recall that I have. So we have access to beers like Bitburger and, uh, you know, a lot of the German Pilsners that are that are out there. Um, my understanding, I had never had one before either that I'm aware of, is this is basically like the light version of a lot of those popular German Pilsners that we kind of do have access to over, over here in the States. Okay. Uh, I'll tell you what, Jake Jake's version was absolutely crushable, drinkable, clean. There was nothing wrong with it. Um, so I was, I was stoked that he sent it in. I, 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 now I'm trying to plan out a light German lager or a German liked beer. Um, I was looking at his recipe and comparing it to what I would do for something like an American light lager. And really what it seems to boil down to is a slight difference in the type of hops you use and a little bit of a difference maybe in the yeast. Um, really, that's it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if you think about it, they're, they're both, you know, maybe a little bit more adjunct in the American in the American light lager is another sure. thing. But um, anyways, thanks to Jake for sending that in. If you want to have a beer that you made or any other fermented beverage that you brewed up uh, reviewed by Jersey and Tim, you can email me, Marshall at Brewlosophy.com, and I will get you all set up. Hang tight. We're going to be back right after these brief messages. After a long brew day, the last thing I want to do is waste more time chilling wort. I've tried so many different options, and ultimately, I settled on the super-efficient immersion chillers made by Jaded Brewing. With the King Cobra and Hydra, I'm able to chill my entire batch of wort, from boiling to just a few degrees above groundwater temperature, in as little as six minutes. If an immersion chiller is right for your brewery, then do yourself a favor and check out all of the rad options Jaded Brewing has to offer at jadedbrewing.com. And be sure to let them know Brewlosophy sent you. Shopping for brewing supplies online can be a real hassle, which is why we recommend Love to Brew. They've got great prices, super fast shipping, and they carry exclusive products like East Coast Yeast, the Brewer's Essentials brand, and their award-winning beer recipe kits. They're also the only place you can pick up your very own Brewlosophy recipe kit. The numbers don't lie. Love to Brew has hundreds of five-star reviews and thousands of brewers are choosing them for their supplies and ingredients each year. Experience the difference at lovetobrew.com. That's love, the number two, brew.com. As every brewer knows, the best beer requires the best hops, which Yakima Valley Hops provides fresh from the source to brewers around the world, carrying everything from classics like Cascade to modern favorites like Galaxy and Mosaic, as well as other ingredients and gear, Yakima Valley Hops has it all. And don't forget to check out their new podcast, The Late Edition, where the YVH crew goes into depth on our favorite plant with industry experts. Head over to yakimavalleyhops.com now to see all they have to offer and subscribe to The Late Edition wherever it is you listen to podcasts. When dumping wort-soaked grain and leftover low-gravity wort while cleaning up after a brew day, do you ever wonder what your true efficiency would be if that wort made its way to the kettle instead? Using the brew bag, a fabric filter for all mash tuns and brewing methods, allows you to capture every last drop of wort. Not only does this increase kettle efficiency, it lowers your grain bill, which saves you money. Throwing wort in the trash is like dumping a 12-pack down the drain and just doesn't make sense. Use the brew bag and leave no wort behind. I've been using these filters for a long time and recommend them to everyone. I never have to worry about a stuck sparge and clean up is fast and easy. Go grab yourself a brew bag fabric filter at brewinabag.com and be sure to use code TBP17 at checkout to get a discount on your order. The length at which one boils their wort is one of those variables in brewing that seem to go largely unquestioned, at least as far as I can remember. If you weren't boiling for 60 minutes, you were boiling longer, certainly not shorter. I'm curious what we know about this rule, like how it came about. You know, uh, as far as I can tell, it's a mystery. You know, I, I did quite a bit of research and I found multiple references to um, boiling wort and, you know, some places years ago and still to some extent some breweries in Germany still do this where they would actually boil in the mash tun but there was never uh, any real defined rule or time frame to actually setting the boil length or even why they started boiling yeah. to 60 minutes in the first place yeah it's, it's not like somebody was like hey we figured out boiling let's write that down and start the rule book of brewing um, I, I did the same thing. I, I, I spent a good hour just looking for the like the source of why we yeah. boil for 60 minutes. Um, the best I could find, and we'll see if this is aligned with this. And by the way, if listen, if you if somebody out there is listening going, duh, you know, these guys should.
should know the history of boiling wort. Uh, here's the source. Please send it to us. Um, this is something that I'm seriously curious about. Um, the best I could find was that was that boiling likely, you know, uh, became a thing uh, just as a way to kill off microbes. And I'm not even sure the folks who were doing this, uh, who first started boiling, knew exactly what microbes were. Just that when the when the wort got really hot and started bubbling, uh, that their their beers didn't end up tasting sour. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they made some really bad batches of hooch or something, you know, and decided Let, let's try to boil it and, and, uh, or who knows? I mean, we could go down a rabbit hole on this <laughs> alone on how they ended up boiling it. Yeah. Right? A speculative rabbit hole that would likely end nowhere. Uh, or, you know, another possible theory maybe is if it was something born out of decoction, right? Which isn't the same as boiling your wart, but, uh, perhaps, you know, they were messing around with decoction and which is taking a portion of the grain from your mash taking it out, heating it up to boil, adding it back to your mash to bring up the temperature of your mash and kind of doing a step mash that way. Um, and, and maybe they were playing around with it and realized, hey, if we boil the whole volume of wort, this tastes a little bit better than it does when we don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was wondering about the whole like, you know, what came first, decoction or the boil type of thing. Um, and it, it, it sort of makes sense that, that maybe decoction was more heavily used because uh, why weren't they just running off the wort and boiling it beforehand? Um, yeah. But anyways, uh, you know, the history of boiling uh, wort is, 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 is elusive and it's, it's getting away from us. So if you do know about that, please let us know. Uh, but there are some things that happen when we boil the wort that have become very important uh, to modern home brewers. Yeah, and I think the big one, which we've already touched on, is, is it's killing all kinds of bad microbes and anything that could cause the wort to go sour or uh, spoil uh, throughout the fermentation process. You know, you, you want to get it up, what is it, 180 degrees Fahrenheit, 82 degrees Celsius, I think, um, in order to kill off everything for, it doesn't really matter how long, but just for a couple minutes, just to make sure everything's uh, killed off. Yeah, right. And and, and that, that was another thing about the history of the whole thing. I was thinking like, Man, if if it only takes getting it to 180 degrees Fahrenheit, 82 Celsius, uh, to kill off the microbes, it totally makes sense that somebody would have just left it there and for you know like oh you got to take the kids to school or whatever, you know and the and the wort started boiling anyways, um, but it definitely it, it kills off those beer spoilage microbes. Um, probably the thing that boils are are most known for, I guess, or one of the few things is the is that it also um, it, it's what it's required for the isomerization of alpha acids. So um, all this means is that the, it's the bitterness that's imparted from the alpha acids in hops that are that are isomerized because of the heat uh, during the boil. Um, and this is where we get the whole idea of the bittering addition being at 60 minutes because the longer those hops are in the boiling wort, the more isomerization occurs. Uh, flavor additions being around 30. Ostensibly, you're getting less isomerization, which means you're keeping around more and keeping around more of those uh, hop oils. And then, of course, aroma additions anywhere from 15 minutes uh, to flame out. Um, and you're getting even less isomerization and more hop oil is sticking around. You know, so I was thinking about this uh, specific point and the fact that if you do a shorter boil, let's say when they first started messing around with boiling, they were doing it for 15 or 20 minutes. You're going to have to use a lot more hops in order to get the same bitterness level, right? right? And so maybe, again, pure speculation, hops weren't all that abundant, and somehow, between trial and error, this 60-minute number came about as we could cut back on the amount of hops we have to use and hold the temperature for 60 minutes, and we get the same quality of beer that we had at 15 minutes with triple or quadruple the hops. Imagine being the dude who figured that out. Like, like you go to all your brewing homies and you're just like, dude, I figured this thing out where if you just leave the wort around longer uh, with the hops in it, you get all that bitterness without all the vegetal. And also you have more hops to use in other beers. I mean, that, that seems like a huge, kind of like a huge discovery that seems sort of trivial nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> so another, you'd be a hero, though. Uh, you would be, be a, a brewing hero. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Another thing that happens during the boil is that the proteins in that wort coagulate. And th this is an important thing, creating what's called the hot break. Um, the heat from the boiling wort forces that, 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 that those proteins and polyphenols to clump together. They get bigger and, and dense enough to where they fall out of the wort, leaving you with a presumably, well, a clearer wort that, that presumably leads to a clearer beer. Yeah, I the hot break was always something, especially when I uh, started first started all grain, was uh, something I struggled with. I I never 
paid attention when it was coming at first, you know, the very <laughs> first few batches and, and stuff would just be running over. It causes huge mess, but uh, yep, it's definitely a big part of it, uh, boiling and you definitely want to have a nice big hot break. And I saw it hot break. One way to, one way to, uh, uh, you know, save your, not only save, you know, your counters, your, your stove or your burner, but also p- potentially the relationship with your, your significant other is to use firm cap S, which I'm a big fan of, uh, to, and it works good. I use half the recommended amount in all of my, in all of my boils and I haven't had a boil over in years. So when I switched to grandfather and started brewing inside, uh, Jake Houlihan right away recommended you need to get that. And so I picked it up and it, it changed everything about my approach to the hot break. I put my drops in, walk away and don't have to worry about it. The stuff is magical. I used to think that it was made of like unicorn horns and, and pixie <laughs> dust, but then I learned it was made of like anti-gas liquid. It's basically oh, cymethic. <laughs> it's the that, stuff that you give sounds, your kids. That does not sound, oh yeah, I used to give my kids that stuff, yeah. but it doesn't sound cool at all. No, 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 not nearly as cool as, as unicorns. So yeah. uh, another reason for the boil or another thing that happens during the boil is that the uh, you, you get the work concentrates due to evaporation of the water. It's just like boiling any other liquid, um, water is going to evaporate off, which is going to condense that wort a little bit more. Yeah. And this is a good way also of adjusting your, your volume or your, uh, gravity while you're brewing it, you're able to take measurements and you know, if you're going to be short on gravity, but a little high on volume, you can boil for a little bit longer and try to balance that number out. Right. I think the only thing with, with that in terms of the boil is making sure that you, you know, if, if indeed that it is true that the, the amount of time hops spend in boiling wort is going to increase that IBU, your bitterness, then you got to pay attention to that. You know, if you've already tossed in a first wort hop addition or a 60 minute hop addition, you decide to extend your boil by half an hour just to increase your OG, you know, it's something to to mess around with maybe in your, in your brewing software to see where it's going to potentially land you. Um, I know that we've been learning lately that maybe, um, IBU measurements aren't, aren't necessarily as accurate as we've always believed. So, so Jason, what's another, uh, what's another thing boils do for us? So I'm going to be the guy who pronounces words wrong on every episode. I think that's just going to be my shtick. No, for, it's all, it, for the we podcast. all do it, dude. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so Malliard reactions, Mayard. Mayard. see anytime I've ever talked about this in homebrew club meetings, it's always been Malliard. And then today I was researching how to pronounce it and it's Mayard. So <laughs> you researched how to say Mayard or Mayard. Well, yeah, I wanted to make sure I was doing it right. Cause I didn't want to be the jerk that didn't know how to pronounce it. Well, whatever but, people get it. <laughs> <laughs> so th- this is something that, um, it, it, what happens is the, wort at the bottom of the kettle it's believed gets too hot and what it what it does it's called a browning reaction is another way to reference it it actually has to do with the sugars and the interaction and and darkening the colors of the wort as well as not leaving a caramely extra flavor in the wort itself but um more of a uh, toasty roasted flavor right um so it, it I don't know. What do you think? Is this something that we need to worry about with our small gas setups and now more electrical setups? Uh, You know, this is one of those things that I I think is very questionable. I've seen, um, well, I've, I've engaged in a few, uh, you know, not terribly contentious conversations about whether Maillard reactions actually happen or not. But the issue is that is that um the like the lowest temperature for a Maillard reaction to actually occur is like 285 degrees Fahrenheit, right? So 140 degrees Celsius. Um that's quite a bit more than boiling point. And anybody who has a thermometer on their kettle knows that once your wort starts to boil, it's not really getting much hotter than that. Like there are and I and I use big burners, you know, and right. that wort's not getting much hotter than that. So the argument that I've heard, and I'm not necessarily sure how valid this is um, when it comes to Maillard reactions, is that that wort that is right at the bottom of the kettle, so what's t- what's closest to that flame, it, or or I guess for electric brewers, it would be whatever's clo- right, you know, closest to the element, that that has the a potential because it is very hot down there of 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 having you know of going through this Maillard reaction, converting into you know those those sugars kind of browning like you said, and and contributing kind of a toasty character. 
I'm just not sure I've ever experienced that, and and I'm not sure that the wort is in you know that wort is moving around like crazy. I'm right. just not I'm just I'm just not convinced that it's actually happening. Um, it's definitely not caramelization. A lot of people use that term wrongly. Um, caramelization only occurs at for maltose especially. It only occurs at 356 degrees Fahrenheit. That's about 180 degrees Celsius. Um, it, it's highly unlikely we're getting any caramelization during the boiling process. So uh, yeah, this whole thing with Maillard reactions, I'm not totally convinced it's actually happening. I'm not necessarily sure how we can design an experiment to test it out. Um, but, but I've, I've done some pretty vigorous boils and I've not noticed much of a darkening of my word or anything like that. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I don't see this, this being that big of an issue or something I've ever experienced myself. I shouldn't say it's that big of an issue, but some people probably want it to happen. I mean, th- th- those, you know, you think of, sure. you think of the way like toast, you know, when you take white bread and you put it in a toaster, that that's a, That's an example of a Maillard reaction or you take a, a, you know, a nice steak and you put it on a sizzling cast iron, you know, that's, that's what you're going for. It's a good flavor. Again, I'm just not, I'm just not sure it's happening. Right, right. Yeah. And another reason uh, we boil is, as you talked about too, or alluded, alluded to earlier, is driving off um, any undesirable compounds such as S-methyl... You're going to have to help me out on this one. <laughs> this is probably the most, the, the, most the, the reason that people point to as being the most important reason that we, that we right. boil wort is that it drives off uh, undesirable compounds, uh, like you were saying, Jason. Um, so, so a little, this is, I'm not going to get too deep into this, but SMM or S-methylmethionine, I think is how it's said, uh, is produced during the germination process. So when malt is being made, most of it's driven off during kilning, at least that's what they say. But some can remain in paler malts like Pilsner malt or, or Pale 2 row, stuff like that. Um, those malts that require a little bit less kilning. Um, so to keep things simple, you, you know, we don't have, you know, this is not a, like a, like a university class here. SMM gets converted into the, you know, the bogeyman we all try to avoid dimethyl sulfide, <laughs> which is DMS, right? When yep. the wort gets heated. Um, and there's a whole mechanism by which it gets converted and all that stuff. Google it. You'll, you'll find more info than you're going to get here on, on that exact process. Um, but DMS is said to impart flavors of cooked or creamed corn. I personally, when I've done like the, um, when I dose beers with actual DMS, to me, it tastes kind of like ketchup that's been sitting out for a couple of days. Like it's all warm. Uh, but that kind of like vegetable cooked creamed version of a vegetable is, is what a lot of people get DM, uh, you know, how they experience DMS and boiling apparently volatizes, you know, the, that off and allows it to, to, to leave the boil. I, I've had it and I, I know there's debate about whether the cream corn descriptor is, is most accurate and, and ketchup. I could definitely see that as well. And I've had a beer that wasn't dosed with it, but it was just a horribly made beer full of DMS and it, <laughs> it, it was cream corn through and through to me. Don't uh, throw me under the bus, dude. I, you know. I, I've yet to have any of your beers, so we're good. Well, we're your good mind there. isn't blown yet then. We'll just, <laughs> so yeah, I've heard, I've also heard, heard like cooked cabbage, which, you know, you throw cabbage in some boiling water and I, I don't mind the smell when I know I'm going to be eating it with some corned beef or something, but, but that that's, you don't want that in your beer, you know, that whatever that flavor, that smell is, it just, it doesn't really work well with a light lager. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, so um, so that again, that, that that's probably the most important. I, another reason I like to boil is because it's what makes my garage smell so amazing. Especially oh. after adding, you know, that first hop addition, it's just like now I'm brewing. You know, I'm making beer. So yeah, um, and that's when the family starts peeking around the corner at me, going, "Man, did you did you really have to do this today?" So yes. <laughs> you kitchen, yes, brewers, I did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> always have to do it. Well, there are yeah. some general ideas that I want to talk about. Um, mainly just that that um, again, we I guess we kind of hit on it earlier, but this idea of length of the boil, uh, Jason, you said earlier that, that, you know, if you're going for 60 to 90 minutes, then that's, you're adding less hot material to the, to the kettle, which means, uh, you're getting that, you know, you're getting your, your alpha acids, your isomerized alpha acids using less vegetal material, which could potentially have an impact on flavor on aroma, on stuff like that. You're driving off DMS. Um, you, you, you know, you're concentrating your wort. So if you, you know, if your wort comes out at say you're shooting for 1055 and your, your wort comes out of the mash at 1048, well, you can just adjust that boil length, uh, to make sure that you hit that, that proper OG. So there are a lot of good things about the boil, but the question remains, is this mandate accurate? Am I going to ruin my beer if I don't go for a full 60 minutes? Well, when we come back from this break, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about. 
family-owned Atlantic Brew Supplies, the largest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. They offer exclusive malts, yeast, and more from local artisans, as well as award-winning recipe kits. They also sell professional brewing gear and cask equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Most ingredients are available by the ounce, plus Atlantic Brew Supply has an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew. Orders are processed same day, and two-day shipping is guaranteed for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order using promo code BREWPOD. That's B-R-U-P-O-D at AtlanticBrewSupply.com. Compact and simple to use with a small footprint for brewing indoors, the Grainfather makes it easy for you to brew professional quality beers at home. The Grainfather is an all-in-one brewing system that lets you brew all-grain beer in a single, compact stainless steel unit. It uses an electric heating element and pump to maintain a constant temperature and to circulate the wort during the mashing and cooling stages. It also comes with a counterflow chiller to reduce chilling times and produce high-quality wort. And now, with the addition of their conical fermenter, the Grainfather takes things one step further by offering homebrewers state-of-the-art temperature-controlled fermentation just like commercial breweries use. And with the Grainfather Recipe Creator and Connect app, you can easily design a recipe, sync your brewing system with your phone, and then just sit back and relax as the app takes over and assures that you maintain your scheduled mash temps and boil schedule. Head to Grainfather.com to purchase your all-in-one brewing system today and to sign up for their free recipe creator tool. Once more, head on over to Grainfather.com. That's Grainfather.com and get started today. Founded in 1978 by brewing pioneer Charlie Papazian, the American Homebrewers Association is a division of the Brewers Association focused specifically on protecting and promoting the hobby of homebrewing. In addition to their work lobbying for the rights of homebrewers across the country, they're also the primary sponsor of Brewlosophy.com. By joining the AHA, not only are you supporting their cause, but you get a ton of benefits as well. Discounts at brewers across the U.S., early access to tickets for events like the Great American Beer Festival, and you get to attend HomebrewCon, the world's biggest gathering of homebrewers. Head over to brewlosophy.com slash AHA now to sign up to become a member. One of my favorite things about experimentation is that it allows us to do crazy things that we might otherwise never play around with. I remember designing the first boil length experiment and thinking how stupid it was to boil for less than an hour, that it was obviously going to be a significant finding, but sometimes stupid can be pretty fun and interesting. Ask my wife, she will confirm that for you. Uh, so back in early 2015, I decided, I, I decided to compare beers boiled for either 30 minutes or 60 minutes, and I thought I was just being nuts by doing this. Um, what I did is I made two five-gallon batches of an American pale ale, the grist consisting of 45% pale malt, 30% Vienna malt, 15% rye malt, and 10% crystal malt. Um, again, you know, this is this is one of those times where I'm is one of the first experiments we did, you know, really kind of going nuts with this whole boil length thing. I just was convinced uh, that it was going to produce a significant result. Um, and and so I, I was, I, you know, I didn't think too much about this grain bill. And if, if go, looking back now, I probably would have gone a little bit higher on the pale malt percentage there. But um, in order to adjust to account for the um, the boil off rate difference between 30 and 60 minutes, I adjusted the total volume of pre-boil water uh, so that the 30-minute boil had about, it was like a half a gallon less than a starting volume than the 60-minute boil batch. And uh, both worts had the same OG post-boil, so I did something right. Thank you, Beersmith. Uh, the beers were treated exactly the same from that point forward. The 30-minute boil finished uh, 0.001 SG lower than the 60-minute boil beer. So not really a huge deal. I mean, it's only one point, you know. Um, and I think they were at something like 10, 11 or 10, it was like 10, 11 and 10, 10, something like that. So, um, again, not a big deal in my opinion. Uh, after the beers were done fermenting, I kegged them up, carbonated them to the same level. And then I ended up serving uh, this beer to 24 participants, including our friend from experimental brewing, Denny Kahn. He, he and a friend up in Oregon got together and uh, sampled these beers that I sent them and uh, did the triangle test without knowing what they were doing. But in all 24 participants, which would mean that we would need 13 of those people. So 13 out of 24 to correctly identify the odd beer out in order for us to say that the findings were significant. In the end, 
How many got it right, Jason? Nine people got it right. So Nine this people. was not significant at, you know, uh, at the end of the day, which, which is pretty amazing. And, and the, the write-up you have on, on the website, it, it busted me up when I first pulled it up because you have the Mythbusters gif up top. <laughs> and, and by the time you get to the bottom, you're like, yeah, okay, that's definitely warranted here because I could imagine back in 2015, you know, before stuff like this was really starting to take hold and, and testing uh, out different aspects of, of brewing and, uh, you know, a boil length of 30 minutes should have been something that was significantly different. It should have been like drinking the water out of a can of corn. Like that's, that's how I was thinking of it. <laughs> right, right. And, but, but honestly, this is one of those cases where like when I poured the beers for myself at first, I told myself like, Oh, I can taste the difference. You know, I know that this one was boiled for 30 minutes and it tastes corny or whatever. But as soon as, as soon as they were served to me in, in opaque, cups and you know, I was blind to which one was which they were identical and I'm talking like there was nothing different between these beers neither I nor any of the tasters noted any characteristics suggestive of DMS or any other off flavors um, it, it was it, especially at the time nowadays I can talk about boil length anyone who follows brewlosophy.com knows about our short and shoddy series and whatnot um, but but this at the time 2015 I it, it was kind of, you know, it was a big eye opener for me. Yeah. So one thing I was wondering, cause there's not many pictures in the article, but do you remember or have in your notes anywhere of any color differences? You know, cause one thing we talked about, it could lead to different colors or, or any differences at all in the appearance of these beers. No, there was uh, it, so throughout the process, there was zero uh, difference in appearance between the beers. And I remember, you know, when, when those beers, we're finished and in the glass, I would hold them up to the light and I'd start looking saying, okay, well, one looks darker than the other, but then they would flip back and forth based on the position of the light bulb on the ceiling, right. you know, yeah. um, the beers just did not look that different to me. Um, and they certainly didn't taste any different. So, you know, I, yeah, this is another one that, that really kind of just got me scratching my head wondering uh, you know, how little do I actually know about this whole brewing thing? <laughs> well, as it turns out, <laughs> well, after publishing these results, uh, people were quick to point out the lack of a difference was likely due to my use of pale and Vienna malts rather than Pilsner malt, which makes sense. I thought the same thing. I just didn't expect uh, this result to come back non-significant. So I designed another experiment to test that claim out. So for the second experiment, it looks like you brewed a uh, Kolsch. You uh, did two different batches. Instead of doing the 60 and 30 minute, you went with one uh, five and a half gallon batch boiled for 90 minutes and another five and a half gallon batch boiled for 30 minutes yep. otherwise they were treated identical there was uh, about 93 percent german pills malt 3.4 percent percent munich malt um let's see 2.7 flaked wheat and just a little bit of crystal 60 or caramel 60 yeah this was one of those um we actually did a it was like a competition that our, our friend olin Sudeth from brew united was throwing i figured i'd participate this was back when i was still competing a little bit um, so uh, the the reason you see all of these malts just to get you know just to kind of explain to people why there's all these things is that there was a requirement that you had to have at minimum one percent of each one of those malts in this beer and hence the one percent C60 for color. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, ninety three percent Pilsner malt. There was no one on earth at the time, in my opinion, that I had ever talked to at the very least who would have expected a thirty minute boiled you know ninety three percent grist Kolsch uh, to come back not tasting, you know, of DMS. So, uh, you know, like you said, the, the beers were treated identically with the exception of the boil length. And again, I had to adjust that those, those pre-boil volumes of water just to make sure that I, I hit the same OGs. They were close. Uh, the 30 minute boil came back at 1044 OG and the 90 minute boil came back at 1046. So not much of a difference. It was probably due to a site, slightly inaccurate setting in Beersmith. I probably had my boil off just, just, you know, set a tiny bit off. Um, the 30 minute boil, you know, I pitched the same yeast. I let them ferment at the same temperature, all that stuff. The 30 minute boil uh, batch finished at 1007 FG while the 90 minute boil beer was, uh, finished at 1006 FG. So again, they're pretty close, close enough in my opinion. Um, and then after being kegged and carbonated, I collected data, uh, serving these to 18 participants, uh, which would mean that we would need 10 in order to suggest that these, uh, results were significant. And we only had six. 
exactly one third of the participants. That's just like guessing. It is 100% guessing. Uh, when you've got three options, the chances of you randomly guessing the right one is, is one third. It's six out of 18. Uh, so obviously that indicates that these findings were not significant, corroborating the results from the first experiment. So a little bit of a replication on this one. And myself, I was completely unable to tell these beers apart based on aroma, flavor, or mouthfeel. However, in this one, I did think I noticed somewhat of an appearance difference. The uh, 90-minute boil beer being ever so slightly darker, but not by much uh, than the 30-minute boil beer. Yeah, I'm looking at the picture right now, and I was going to say the same thing. The one on the right, which is the long 90-minute boil picture, looks a little bit darker, but it's to the point where you question, is it the lighting or is it the beer? Yeah, I, I this was another one where I held up to the light you know, multiple times, and I didn't quite see the shifting like I did in the, in the pale malt uh, boil length experiment. So I really do think that something about that longer boil, which could have just been, you know, uh, uh, the, the, it, it got more concentrated. It was 1046 as opposed to 10 or to 1044 or whatever it was for the OG. Maybe just that slight bit more concentrated wort did have a bigger impact on, on that color development. But hey, uh, yet again, another experiment where neither I nor the participants could tell apart a 30 minute boiled beer from one boiled for a, you know, the time you're supposed to boil them. Pretty crazy stuff. That is it. it even now, as we're talking about it and, and knowing what I've done, um, as far as short and shoddy goes, it still, it, it blows my mind that 60 minutes is, you know, one of those numbers that really doesn't, have to be stuck to exactly but you know <laughs> it's welded into my brain as being the right way to do it and we did something kind of fun by sending those 30 and 90 minute boil samples off to a lab for testing but before we get to that i want to tell you all about our sponsor brewers hardware who specializes in tri-clover compatible sanitary fittings conical fermenters kettles and brew stands brewers hardware offers a variety of unique and hard to find items for both the home and craft brewing markets including high quality stainless fittings at competitive prices and very fast shipping they're excited to announce the release of the bcs 482 control system which provides everything needed to fully automate your brewery learn more about this and the other great gear they offer at brewershardware.com and don't forget to mention brewlosophy at checkout to receive a free little gift that's brewershardware.com so following that uh that that pilsner model boil length experiment because I kind of didn't trust my palate. Um, so I had the bright idea to send those samples off uh, to a lab to have them tested to see if there was actually DMS in either of the beers. Yeah. So both samples were sent off and like you said, tested to see how much DMS was in either sample completely you know, I mean, this is a machine judging it. It's not pallets and there's no taster fatigue or any other variables going into this here. This is True data, true science, measuring this stuff. <laughs> true science, and, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it is. And, and these beers had below the normal threshold for DMS, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there was like nothing there as far as registering DMS-wise on, on either beer, the 90 or the 30-minute. Neither, uh, neither of them popped for DMS. Um, and they were run through this and I'm not, again, I cannot go over. I don't, first off, I don't really know how it works, but, right. um, I'm not, I'm not going to go over the whole process for how, uh, I think his name is Daniel, um, you know, ran, uh, these beers through his, his, uh, DMS testing mechanism. Uh, but neither of them, and he was confident. He said, neither of these beers had, had DMS in them, uh, at all. And that, and he had no idea which ones he was necessarily testing. I, I wrote him in afterwards so that he can make his graphs for us and whatnot. Uh, so pretty fascinating. So it wasn't just that people didn't taste, you know, the DMS, which is something that we get criticized for a lot, right? Well, it could still be there, just your, your tasters suck or whatever it is. Right. Uh, but a lab actually could not find DMS in these beers. Pretty nuts, man. I was, I was, uh, rather excited with those findings, but also again, it's just scratching my head even harder because of, uh, because of those results. Yeah. And so then Matt Del Fiaco, another brewlosophy contributor decided to put boil length to the, we said your 90 and 30 minute test or boil experiment was the extreme. I think Matt topped you here. He went with <laughs> a, a 60 and 180 minute boil. Right. And his whole point on this one, uh, we, we, we'd kind of, you know, not, we don't view the whole idea of a short boil as being conclusively okay or anything. His thing was, okay, let's take a normal boil length, 60 minutes and compare that to this, 
you know, a, a triple as long boil, a, you know, a, it's something that, that you're boiling for three times as long when you're accounting for boil off. So you're using again, uh, more pre-boil volume. Are we actually getting the, you know, that concentration of the word, that color change, the Maillard reactions, any caramelization that people might posit, is that going to happen? Yeah. So he made a Scottish heavy, uh, he made two five gallon batches and did a 60 and 180 minute boil. Both batches were treated the same. There was 96.6% golden promise and just a touch little under three and a, or a little over three and a third percent of crystal medium. And then, uh, like I said, everything was treated the same after that. And it seemed like a normal, typical brew day, just a very extended brew day <laughs> for Matt, uh, with, you know, everything coming in almost on the dot, the same for both batches. And then for the 60 minute boil, his, um, target OG of 1040, he nailed it on both 60 and the 180, yeah. uh, which is Excellent math on Matt's part. Well, I mean, I mean cre- credit where credit's due. Uh, you know, Beersmith is not a paid sponsor of Brewlosophy, but my goodness, uh, Matt nailed this. Matt also <laughs> uses the um, an electric uh, unibrow system that allows him to really, really dial in the the vigor of his boil and whatnot. And uh, so that probably contributed to it as well. But for both the 60-minute and the 180-minute boil batches, he nailed the same exact predicted OG of 1040. So then you pitched uh, Imperial Yeast Tartan, and then uh, both of them fermented out. We had a final gravity of 1.012 on both batches. So, I mean, these things were identical from start to finish other than the boil length. That's as close as you can get. Based on the numbers alone, you'd expect these beers to be exactly the same. Uh, despite the fact that one was boiled for three times as long as the other one. So Matt goes out and serves these beers to 22 participants. He kegs them up, carbonates them, serves them to 22 participants, which would require 12 of them to identify the unique sample in order for us to say that it was significant. Uh, you want, anybody want to guess out there what the, uh, what the ultimate results were? 10 people got it correct, which still didn't reach significance. Yeah. So, so any differences in appearance that Matt saw, which, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't know if there were any or not. It's kind of like that, you know, the, the, the prior experiments, they looked the same depending, or or they might've looked a little different depending on the lighting or what was behind each glass or whatever. But in the end, they looked exactly the same. Uh, and according to the participant uh, pool, they tasted and smelled and mouthfeeled almost exactly the same as well. Yeah, just looking at the the final picture he has here, I I can't tell a difference. There's no question of lighting or th- anything weird going on in, in terms of you know what, whether one's darker or lighter. They they look identical here. They look good too. Yeah, <laughs> they, they make do. me want to drink a. Scottish heavy. Yeah. Hey, Matt, I need a Scottish heavy, but <laughs> me too. Well, and, uh, just to, just to talk a little bit about Matt's impressions of the beers, he attempted three triangle tests. He did get two out of the three, right? But he admitted that he was just guessing and he happened to guess the, uh, you know, the odd beer out. Um, he was also biased. So maybe that played a role in it a little bit, but uh, he felt that the beers were identical in all respects. Um, basically what this, this experiment kind of suggests that even an extended boil length, 180 minutes compared to a, you know, your more typical 60 minute boil length, isn't going to contribute any extra, uh, you know, aromas, flavors, or mouthfeel uh, to the beer that you're making. Yeah. Crazy to me. Yeah. I mean, that's an insane amount of time. You would surely think something different at some point would kick in, but, uh, yeah. It just didn't happen here. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing that was different probably is that his energy bill went up a little bit. system. Exactly. I mean, it's 120 volt, you know, whatever. It's not going to, it's not going to sap your power, but, um, you know, three hour boils, that's, that, that's a typical thing for some Scottish beers. You know, you hear about these, uh, Scottish breweries, uh, doing all that, st- you know, every, you know, maybe they're condensing their, their wort down into a syrup and then adding it back in stuff like that. But, uh, it just makes me wonder if it's worth all of the effort. And based on the results of these three experiments, it would, it would seem to suggest maybe that they're not. I wonder, Jason, where are you at with your, uh, with your thoughts on boil length these days? Uh, you know, I, I, just for the experiments, I typically stick to 60 minutes for consistency, but if I'm brewing on my own, I have no problem taking shortcuts and cutting it down to 30 minutes or 45 minutes, depending on how much time I have to brew for myself. Yeah. I do take into account the, you know, the amount of hops I have to use, but other than that, look, I'm not stuck to the 60 minute number anymore, uh, at all. What about you? Yeah. So, so boil length, uh, these, this, it was the first two experiments that I did that really, 
um, kind of, I guess, are what, what really motivated me to start this whole short and shoddy um, series that we do now. Um, you know, thinking about, you know, well, if, the, if, if mash length isn't said to contribute, you know, if, if you reduce your mash length, and we'll, we'll have a show on that in the future, but if you reduce your mash length, it's not really, they're not really saying that you're going to get bad flavors from that. They're, you're just not going to get as much conversion. That's usually right. a big argument from it, whatnot. So that didn't bother me too much. It was always the boil, you know, boil length and maybe something like fermentation temperature. Um, but if these experiments are showing that it doesn't really matter, what if I can turn around a beer in, you know, an, an all grain batch of beer in like an hour and a half or two hours? Uh, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I do that if it's not going to make a, a noticeable difference um, and potentially not even a, a measurable, like objectively measurable difference in levels of DMS and whatnot? Uh, so my, my thoughts are these days, I mean, it's been what, three years since I did that first experiment and yeah, a little over actually, yeah, a little over three years. And I'm, I'm, to the, I, I just don't see the point uh, oftentimes in, uh, boiling long. If I just want to squeeze in a quick brew day now, like you said, because we are brewing mostly experiments, um, and a lot of those are two batches side by side. I found that boiling for an hour does make for a little bit less hectic of a brew day. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Especially with chilling and whatnot. Like I've got one chiller for you know I got to stagger the batches by twenty minutes, and if I'm only boiling for thirty minutes, that's really a ten minute, and it's just it's a mess. Right. So yeah. So yeah, I, I mean, I've I've done three short and shoddy batches now, and I boiled two of them for fifteen minutes. And there, there was no DMS. The flavor profile was fine. You know, it, yeah. it, 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 it's just 15 minute boil. What? Like that, <laughs> that's insane. Yeah. I think one of the things, uh, there are some, you know, some things that people need to consider when it comes to like, Oh, I'm going to reduce my boil. Well, if you're going for, again, we talked about this in the first segment. If, if we're going for a 1060 OG wort, right. Um, if you're going to reduce your boil, it's, it's not just that you are reducing, uh, the, it, for the most part, you're reducing the amount of water you need to use, but you also right. just depending on where you end up landing, cause things aren't as linear. I, that's another thing that I've learned with all of this is that, is that like, you know, volumes of water and, 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 and pounds of grain. It's not a, like a linear relationship in my experience. So you might have to adjust your, you know, your, um, your grain bill up a little bit. Um, but not by much. And to be honest, it, it, in my experience, like yours, the beers that I'm making short and shoddy, which we're doing for fun, these are just for fun to kind of, so people are entertained by this craziness that we do. They're coming out fantastic. In fact, the American IPA that I recently made using a short and shoddy method, which I think was a 20 minute boil was one of the best I've made in a long time. It was really delicious. So I just, I'm no longer married to this idea that, wort needs to be boiled for 60 minutes. Another thing you have to consider, of course, is the cost of hops because you are going yeah. to be using quite a bit more hops. Yeah, that's you have to take that into account. I, I remember the first short and shoddy batch I did, uh, I forgot to adjust the boil time in Bearsmith. And right before I ran, I think it was you who reminded me, hey, make sure you adjust your boil time so you get the right IBUs. Right. And, <laughs> and I went from like half an ounce to two and a quarter ounce or something like that. It was, it was an insane increase in, in hop amount that I was putting in just for shortening the boil. And those numbers may be off and I may be exaggerating a little bit, but it was, it was quite staggering how much more it required to get to the same IBU. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and there are some workarounds for that. One obviously is to use higher alpha acid hops. The other thing you have to consider if you're going to go that route, let's say you were to go with something like Apollo, um, those, those are a notably flavorful and aromatic hop. And you're, you're putting those in at a time that is known to, uh, retain more of those, those aromatic hop oils. Um, so you gotta be careful of that. You know, if you're making, yep. if you're making a, for example, like a English mild, uh, you're, you don't want to toss in, in a 20 minute boil, you know, a whole bunch of Apollo up front for your bittering addition, it's going to contribute some flavor and aroma. Um, but really, you know, for, for a lot of the beers that we make, uh, as, as homebrewers, it, it's, it's a pretty, in my opinion, it's a pretty, uh, valid approach, you know, reduce that boil length, save a little bit of time, uh, gives you more time to, to have beer with your friends. You know what I mean? I know what you mean. <laughs> totally. One question that we got, I, I feel like it's worth addressing that we got a lot after all of these experiments was, you know, why, why do we not need to boil for 60 minutes now when apparently in the past, just based on this mandate, 
um, it seems like it really was a big issue. I mean, there's a reason DMS was talked about, um, so, you know, so vehemently with with when it comes to boil length and whatnot. And uh, the only thing that I could find uh, in my discussions with a couple of maltsters, uh, as well as just kind of poking around on, on the Googles, uh, is, is just that you know maltsters these days know what they're doing. It's the the modification of modern malt, the the selection of the types of uh, you know the grains, the barley the barley grains that they're growing and whatnot. It's just not producing uh, the SMM, the levels of SMM that used to be present in the malt that that earlier brewers were using. Um, I don't know if you have anything else, Jason. That, that that's all I could find. You know, it, that's we keep coming back to that point in a lot of our discussions, and it's the quality of ingredients that we have access to now compared to when these beliefs and these standards were set for how we're supposed to brew beer. And, and I agree with that hundred uh, percent. I had actually meant to bring that up earlier in the podcast is, you know, a lot of this could have to do with exactly that where we have better quality grain now. And, and like you said, the monsters know what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we live in a good time uh, for brewing beer and for brewing them using short and shoddy methods. So, well, if you want to read about the experiments that we discussed in this episode, if you want to read about any of our short and shoddy experiments or anything else that we're up to, you can head over to brewlosophy.com. The Brewlosophy Podcast is made possible by the generous support of our sponsors as well as all of our rad listeners. We seriously could not do this without you. Cheers to everyone who has subscribed and left a review of our show. It makes a huge difference. If you haven't yet, please consider doing so. Head over to brewlosophy.com support to view a list of ways you can easily help us to continue producing this podcast. If you want a reward for your support, visit patreon.com brewlosophy. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Brewlosophy Podcast. Until then, think beer. With some hot tea, lemon and honey, cause it soothes my bro. Put some herb in the bowl, yeah, it's homegrown. Ain't gotta go through the middle man no more.